weirdos. Nude science is the revolution. Nude science is the revolution. Welcome, all you weirdos, avatars of the powers that be, and everyone who wishes you had a science boy of your very own. Thank you for joining us for a very special edition of the Weirdos Podcast, which today is a non-mutant member of your Weird Science family. I am your host, Jason, broadcasting from the Wrong Turn Studio, high atop stately Weird Science Tower. And here with me live from the Pacific Northwest branch of the Library of Worlds is my man, Ruben. Hey, Ruben, how the heck are you today? Hey, great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, we have this this book that kind of fell in our laps. You know, this is not our usual uh, thing we do here. We do X-Men books. We do mutant books. But Jim decided for some reason that he didn't want to review gods by jonathan hickman on the regular marvel podcast um he, he did send me his score though so i have that in front of me uh, let me find it now it is uh zero hmm. point zero <laughs> yeah that's that's what jim thought of this book uh <laughs> now uh Ruben, let's let's you and me dive in and see if we like this book any more than jim did yeah this spoilers is, i loved it this Uh-oh. is all wrong <laughs> you heard you're we'll see we'll see if if uh do I love it too? We'll leave that to be the exciting yeah. outcome that people have to tune in for. Otherwise, they can tune out now if they knew both our scores. I, I sort of expected to love it. So admittedly, this was probably an easy sell for me. It, what, as soon as they said this is going to be like a Sandman story in the Marvel Universe, that probably <laughs> set the floor of my score pretty. Interest, yeah. yeah, as long as you don't like, you know, crash and burn and insult my intelligence and make me sad, I'm probably going to love it. Okay. And I was happy to say that I actually think the parallels are more stretched than I, I was kind of worried that it was going to be like just a carbon copy of mm-hmm. Sandman, right? And it's not, but I, I see some of the spirit of that series, which is probably my favorite book ever. Um, yeah, here. I mean Neil G- Gaiman has a particular style way of writing that is not at all like Jonathan Hickman, but I, I can see that they're they kind of had similar goals, but the way they get there is is very very different. So and I'm a big is, fan of Hickman. I, I think some people criticize him saying he gives you too much background information, mm-hmm. but I actually feel like these stories are more immersive because of that. And I guess fair criticism, he's usually not the strongest interpersonal character writer, but that, that you is know, the I, knock on Hickman. Yeah, but I actually kind of felt like this story might be slightly different. I felt like I really had a strong opinion of who Wynn was after this, and a lot of it was the art selling beyond. The emotions. It does feel like Hickman has heard that criticism and went out of his way to to work on the characters, which is nice. Okay, let me give the credits before we get too deep into this. This is God's Number One, written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Valerio Schiti, colors by Marte Garcia, letters by Travis Lanham, design by Jade Bowen. Now, Jonathan Hickman has said that when he came to Marvel a few years ago, among the very first things he created were the series Bibles for two different projects. One of those Bibles became House of X. It may have started as a Legion of Superhero story, depending on who you believe, but it became House of X. And the other became this series. Now, House of X turned out to be a pretty big deal. I mean, among other things, it resulted in the existence of this very podcast and what could be bigger than that. Uh, and let's see if Gods makes a similar splash. And, and let's also see if we find out what the acronym G.O.D.S. stands for. Uh, spoiler, no, we, we still don't know what that means. But Hickman introduces two new opposing forces to the Marvel Universe. And they're new to us, the readers, but in story, we're told they've been around forever. The first of these forces is called the powers that be. This force represents all the secret magic stuff in the universe. 
their one and only avatar in the world is Wynn. Full name, Sir Redwin, and that's S-E-R, Sir, like, like in Game of Thrones. He's had the job for a hell of a long time. He appears to be our main protagonist for the series, or at least he is for this one issue we've read so far. The other opposing force is the natural order of things. This force represents science and rationality, that sort of thing. So you can see right up front the very primal opposition start to shape up. It's a very Hickman thing to do. Uh, it reminds me a bit of the Lords of Order, Lords of Chaos deal over at DC. Did you get kind of get that vibe as well? Yeah, I think that's a fair comparison. Now, the natural order of things, they get to have a hundred avatars. Collectively, these are known as the Centrum, and each numbered individual is called a Centivar. Uh, saying those words out loud makes me feel awful silly, like they're centaurs or something, but oh well. There's a hundred of them, got sent to the name, it makes sense. So there's a long-term, uneasy kind of agreement, semi-peace stalemate between the powers that be and the natural order of things. This agreement is called the Compact. We don't know too much about this Compact yet, but one of the requirements is that the avatar of the powers has to take on a proxy, something like an observer or an assistant who has a scientific background. And each centivar of the centrum gets a proxy from the magical side of the street. Wynn's proxy is a younger-appearing blonde kid named Dimitri. Marvel promo materials give his full name as Dimitri the Science Boy. I don't think we've seen that actually on panel yet, but that's what, what Marvel promo says. And this explains why Dimitri wears all white. White seems to be associated with, with the science folks, like a like a lab coat, medical outfit. I, I think that's what they're going for. Yeah, I think we picked up on that too during the teasers that we thought the white outfits had to do with the uh, this group. Yeah, I don't think we knew from the promos that Dimitri was part of the science bit, but it makes perfect sense once you once you see it. And and for it's a comic, so it's nice that there's a visual little clue to the different sides here. I didn't really get the idea that there's a particular color scheme for the magical folks. I mean, the there is only one avatar of magic. Yeah, it's whatever it's, color he wears is the color yeah. scheme. So it's win. It doesn't really matter. He doesn't need a uniform. He's just one dude. Okay, having set up all that setup. Is this a Jonathan Hickman book? It, it sure as hell is. Let's get on to the actual story. The actual story is, is actually quite good. Uh, it starts out with a flash forward with Wynn and Doctor Strange. I'm, I'm sure that Hickman wanted to have a recognizable character right up front to kind of let readers know, yeah, this is 100% in the 616 in the Marvel Universe. Uh, this, this is a scene that we'll see in its... Uh, fullness at the end of the issue, but here it just sets up kind of a thematic tone. It's our new protagonist, Wynne, hanging out on a rooftop with Doctor Strange and bickering back and forth in a way that feels like they've had some version of this argument many times before. Doctor Strange says that he fights on the side of good, on the side of the light. And you can hear the capital letters in those terms when he says them. Wynne, in like a very world-weary, above-it-all, James Dean kind of way, says, Stephen, my boy, who can tell the difference anymore? And we'll see if he still feels that way at the end of the book. Now we jump to 10 years ago. This section of the story, which is about a third of the book, cuts back and forth between two locations. Uh, a woman named Aiko waits for her husband at a bar called Brevort's, hmm, while Wynn and Dimitri investigate an eyes-wide-shut kind of party. These do eventually come together, but let's start off with the party. So Wynn and Dimitri, who here act very much like detectives in a police procedural TV show, whether it's you know your Hill Street Blues or your Law & Order, they stop to investigate a, a get-together at a fancy New York City address. Uh, Wynn looks a little different here than we've seen him in the, the promo pages. He has no white in his hair or beard. 
and his his facial scar is missing. Before they go in, we see Dimitri slap a small white square item onto one of the neighboring buildings. Hey, we've seen those before. We saw them at least two of the prelude pages. There was one next to the missing Baxter building in the Fantastic Four page, and there was one in that hospital-type room in Moon Knight. I guess Dimitri just leaves these things places. Uh, we aren't told what they do yet. Do you have any any theories on this, Ruben? I think this is how their computer is able to monitor everything. And I think this is the, is it Centum? Am I saying yeah. that right? Centum, I think it's Centrum, or maybe I'm just Centrum. thinking of vitamin company. Yeah. In any event, yes, I think this is how they get all the information and monitor the world for, I guess, world-ending threats, which seems to be something that they're about. Certainly could be. I, I'm sure we'll find out soon. It's kind of nice that... While they answer some questions in this book, they also set up a lot of mysteries and questions for us to speculate about going forward. I think there's a nice balance there. We also get our first interest of hearing, our first instance of hearing Dimitri's device speak. This is the white Tetrisy looking handheld thing that's not quite a smartphone. The Marvel Fandom Wiki, which doesn't have any footnote or attribution here, but it calls this thing his, quote, thing of order. Not a great name, and I feel uncomfortable saying it. Anyway, its voice gets its own type of bubble, a jagged and angular, and its own font, one that looks like the fake Greek lettering you see in New York City coffee cups. You know you know that one? You, I'm sure yes. you've seen that famous cup, right? Uh, so, Ruben, what do you think uh, the Thing of Order's voice sounds like? Can you can you do an impression for us? You're always trying to embarrass me, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, just describe it. Then. What, what do you call it? It's clearly supposed to sound weird. We've yeah, got a weird font, yeah. A weird I'm not level. a I'm not an impersonations guy. Okay, but, but something mechanical-ish and yeah. electronic, probably something clearly computery. I'm getting. Oh, you think so? We'll I guess it is kind of squarish. The boxes oh. are square. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, one last observation before our pair goes inside. This house on either side of its glass doorway has has statues, and I noticed this because I've always wanted a house with statues like this. Like really, what I want are the stone lions on the steps. Uh, someday I'll have that. But but these statues aren't lying. The one on our left looks something like a dog, and the one on the right is kind of like a fish or maybe an eel, and, and this will quickly become relevant. Our pair enter and observe a, a bright, busy ballroom with the guests are all dancing and all wearing masks. They're mostly wearing these gold metal masks that remind me of, of Destiny from the X-Books. One of them is going full Spider-Man, though, which a detail that does not come up again in the book, but, but made me laugh. I think this is probably Skeety just having some fun. Did yes. You, did you, yeah. you notice that as well? That's yeah, it's a great little Nice little hit. It definitely the, draws I, your eye, which is interesting how recognizable that mask is. Yep. It draws your eye and it also draws your eye up to the background where you see teeny tiny little uh, Wynn and Dimitri in the background. So it's, it's meant to be seen for sure. Uh, now we meet the host. It's a gentleman wearing a dog mask and a woman wearing a fish mask. Which, hey, we saw them in the Venom prelude page. Uh, we we kind of go to a back room and under the wolf mask we find out is a guy with an actual wolf head. Looks more like a fox to me, but it's called a wolf. And under the fishy mask is a lady with a fish head. Long story short, the whole party is a bit of unauthorized magic. A wolf guy and fish lady or some sort of magical fairyish types. They throw these parties to find human victims to kind of eat parts of their souls, I guess. And this time, they've also accidentally summoned a planar demon. And and I didn't quite get how this fit together. I, I think you had a theory here, Ruben. Or yeah, it's pretty. It, yeah, I think it's on the paper. It tells you what happened. So basically, these are extra dimensional beings that have fled to the Earth, and they seem to be hanging out here and happy. And it sounds like Wynn would deal with these people if they were a big threat. But he's 
not a pure rules follower. So I think he just tolerates these kind of visitors as long as they're not, you know, really threatening reality. And in this case, they are because like you said, they summoned a greater demon to the location, which is how he ultimately decided to go and handle the situation. And the yeah, it must way have they, set off some sort of an alert on some, you know, monitor somewhere. Yeah, maybe yeah. related to Dimitri's little white, uh, white squares. Well, yeah, now. uncertain. We'll see. But in in any event, he's here, and the reason they summon the demon is because they use the wrong words for um, the summoning. And there's a joke about how uh, fish lady. She goes, uh, "Well, I guess he goes. Um, I guessing. I'm guessing you got one of the spells mixed up." Or you transpose the V and the th sound. And then she says, yes, we would never do that. Right. Uh, so we yeah. see on, pa- on panel that she's... I guess if you're a fish lady with a fish mouth, the yes. pronunciation is going to be a little off. Your T's and V's, your T-H's and V's are not going to work, yeah. And so she, instead of doing whatever the normal spell is, um, managed to summon this chaos demon. Yeah, it's kind of a men in black feel, right? Like they're supervising these creatures hidden in the world. As long as they don't cause too much trouble, that they kind of let them slide. Yeah, I think the I think officially they're supposed to take these people out. That they're not supposed to be here, right? That's part of the compact. But yeah, there's a bit here where so Wynn asks Dimitri, "What's our current position on this kind of nonsense?" And Dimitri says, "The compact is clear." But then he says, "You know, I, I'm just here to observe. Uh, you, te- you, Wynn, you tend to look the other way on stuff like this." Yeah, for minor infractions. Yeah, but still an infraction, right? So presumably, if you have rules, the rules would be like, "This is not allowed. You're not allowed to go to another dimension and suck the souls of people." But you know, mistakes happen. Uh, so the rest of this section is Wynn fighting this planar demon. It's this big, ugly worm thing with giant molars and way too many arms. It reminds me a lot of uh, monsters we see in, in manga and anime lately. Japanese monster creators seem to love to have the, the too many of some body part. So lots of eyes, maybe, or lots of fingers. So it makes me think that uh, Skeety might might be into that uh, anime stuff. Uh, so while Wynn does the fighting, Dimitri kind of just stands nearby, scrolling through his not-actually-a-smartphone, looking like a bored teenager. It seems like Dimitri's role as a chained apprentice, that's the term, to Wynn, is, is more of an observer than a direct participant. It's, it's a fun little fight scene. Just two pages, doesn't wear out its welcome. Uh, it's a lot better than a certain fight scene in Immortal X-Men we'll talk about later today, a little promo there. Uh, we never think that Wynn is any actual peril here. I mean, we're not supposed to. This is a comedic fight scene, not a serious one. If this was a movie, there'd be kind of silly music playing in the background. Yeah, I mean, he's getting his butt kicked, but at the same time, he doesn't seem at risk. He seems more annoyed that Dimitri is not giving him the information he needs to end the fight quickly because he has mentioned that he has to be somewhere else. He's got another appointment. Yeah, so it's he's he's getting knocked all around, but again, we never actually think that he is going to get seriously hurt here. Uh, Wynn does eventually win the fight. Dimitri finally gives him some information to, oh, it turns out what the, the creature has two hearts. You gotta get both the hearts. Again, little silly thing. Uh, mostly serves to let us see Wynn and Dimitri in action, what their purpose is, how they interact with each other. And I think it works really well like that. Again, the, the characters of these two guys are stronger than a whole lot of Hickman characters we've seen in the past. Yeah, it's strange that they are opposing forces and they kind of work together and they have a slight bit of animosity. Dimitri's definitely subservient to win, but it's not super hostile. It's really passive aggressive yeah, hostility. It's like Dimitri's there to keep an eye on Win. Yeah. 
keep an eye on him, kind of to ass- assist him. They kind of become friends. They have this complicated little relationship, and I, I, I want to see more of it, which is you know what you want out of a number one issue. Yeah. This is and even though he pushes back on when he does seem to respect what he does, and I mean, even when they first arrive at this party, they, he describes him as like the well-dressed gentleman or something like that, you know, giving him some props. Yeah, I'm not sure how sarcastic that was supposed to be. It kind of was one of those, I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding, but I'm kidding, but I'm also not kidding, one of those things. That's kind of funny. That's some really good artwork by Skeety here, especially in that little fight scene. Uh, but he, I, the whole issue, just he knocks it out of the park. I, I really hope that he stays on every issue of this series. It, it, I always love it when a book has a clear visual identity because it has the same artist consistently, which is rare these days. But if this is like a solid collaboration between Hickman and Skeety, that would really raise raise the level, I think. Okay, so that's this half of the 10 years ago story. All, off to the bar now. Uh, so this is, bar is called Brevoort's. And, and, and by the way, in his newsletter this week, Tom Brevoort answers a question about this bar's name. He's been on record as not liking editors sneaking their own names into the comics they edit, which makes this a little awkward for him. He says in the newsletter that in Hickman's script, the bar didn't even have a name, and that it was the artist, Valerio Schiti, who inserted the sign this way on his own initiative. And Brevoort says that while he appreciates the gesture, he's still not crazy about the practice, but, you know, by the time Schiti turns to the pages, it was simple to just leave them as is. Take that for what you will. So here in Brevoort's, we see a woman that appears to be an Asian, dressed all in white, and with white hair. Hmm. She's waiting for her husband of six years, including, she says, five good ones. And you know, uh, Ruben, as someone myself married for just over 25 years, let me tell you, 83%, that ain't bad. I would <laughs> I would take that every day of the week. Uh, honey, if you're listening, it's 100%. I'm just kidding. Yes. Yeah, we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary this week, and I was thinking the exact same thing. I'd be like, that'd be really good odds. <laughs> uh, yeah, you could do worse, and many have. So anyway, this lady is not at all surprised that uh, her husband is running late. She continues to chat with a bartender who was an older guy and an unthreatening kind of Alfred the butler kind of fella. He's just there so she can have someone to talk to. And it comes out that she's out of a cautious scientific type and her missing husband, Wynn, naturally, is more of the artistic, romantic kind of guy. Hmm. And this is when Wynn shows up after their whole deal with the stupid demon. He makes Dimitri wait outside the bar. Yes, this is personal, not business. So, you know, business guy can't come in. Uh, Wynne sits down next to the woman and they have a, a pretty serious talk. For one thing, Wynne never told his wife about his job, that for over a thousand years, uh, by the way, he's over a thousand years old, he's been the avatar of the powers that be, which is, you know, bad enough. You know, folks out there, you should be a little more open with your, your spouse about things like being a thousand years old and working for a secret magical order. Uh, but Iko has a job offer of her own. And as you might have guessed from her outfit, it's from the natural order of things. Uh, there's a fun little anecdote about how she got the job offer, which is, you know, just kind of a, a silly little magic thing. I, I like that as a, a detail. But she's been offered the position of 97th centivar, which Wynne thinks is great. Hey, that's that's the last prime number in the centum. And as a math teacher, I, I can tell you, yeah, that is the last prime number of 400. Math checks out. And they seem I guess to be leaders prime- too. Yeah. What was that? Some sort of leaders of that organization. Are the primes? I guess that's. I don't know if that's true, but that at least a win thinks that being a prime number is pretty cool. You know, I would too. Later on, we see somebody who's number two be very prominent, and two is a prime number, the only even prime number. Uh, and yeah, I, we, I don't know. Does it go from zero to ninety nine? Does it go from one to one hundred? 
we're not really sure. Again, we're getting kind of glimpses of this, but but Hickman is not holding our hand with a lot of data pages and explanations. We just kind of observe things happen. This is fun. So big problem here for this couple. These two organizations are not actually at war with each other, but they 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 sure don't get along so well where you can marry someone from the other side of the street. It's it's a, almost like a Romeo and Juliet thing in a weird kind of twisted magic science Hickman way. So she has to choose. It's either this new job or her husband. And the job comes with some nice perks like, you know, immortality and the chance to explore all the deep, dark secrets of reality. Now, Wynn has a proposition here. He says, hey, we'll just lie. We'll say we broke up. They don't need to know. Aiko's more of a a rule follower, and she wants an official, by-the-books divorce. And when Wynn refuses, well, what what does Aiko do when Wynn says he's not going to sign the papers? Yeah, well, I think she tells him that she loves him, and that's not the reason they're having to split. And Mm -hmm. then her glove or wristwatch. I can't exactly tell what this is, but it forms into a gun and she blasts him in the face out the window. Yeah, so this is kind of neat. The way the the glove gun thing kind of folds on itself, it reminds me a lot of Dimitri's, uh, what do we name the thing again? The thing that's not a, a cell phone with the disturbing name. I, so I think that's like the kind of technology that, that yes. the science folks These little squares that can form yeah. into whatever. So yeah, she shoots him right in the face. Uh, he's still alive. I mean, it's kind of his book, and this is 10 years ago, so we're, we're sure he's not going to die. He crashes right through the glass door of Brevoort, tumbles onto the rainy street, falls at the feet of Dimitri, who he told to wait outside. And that's the end of the 10 years ago sequence. And now we know why in the current time period, Wynne has that facial scar and that weird looking right eye and that weird streak, weird white streak in his hair and his beard. It's a remnant of his beloved wife shooting him dead in the face. So that's kind of interesting. And kind of interesting, too, how she got recruited. She talks about how she just got, she's a scientist. She got a job at a, you know, science lab. And the lab itself was sort of a front for recruiting people. And so they had, I guess, regular science work. And then if you started asking questions about what the purpose of the lab was, you got insight into the fact that they're a front for this other organization. And, you know, the more you investigate, the more you uncover. And then you find out about the natural order of things, ultimately. Yeah, it reminded me of those alternate reality type games where you go to different websites and you find these clues. And here, the prize is you get to work for, uh, you know, this, this science group. How to do it. Well, you learn about the, if you're a really big scientist, right? Like learning about the way things are is probably like the end goal of your Absolutely. existence. So I could see how it's attractive to them. Hard to resist. Now, we have seen Ico before, which is confirmed because uh, in the Uncanny Avengers promo page, we see Centum number 97 supervise the dissection of a deceased Jack Kirby type character. That's the one where they find a Tesseract inside him, but that was number 97. So she does take the job. Okay, so now jump ahead to the current time period. Uh, we see Wynn and Dimitri walk up to the door of Dr. Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum. I think this is taking place right after the final promo page, the one from Venom. Well, that promo page also featured Wolf Guy and Fish Lady, and that story happened 10 years ago, so it's a bit confusing, but you know, they're promos. They are greeted, not very warmly, but they're greeted by Wong, and he escorts them through a secret magical portal to a meeting at the Library of Worlds. This is a location created by Hickman in his New Avengers, one that played a big part in his Secret Wars event, so... No, Hickman's comfortable here. Wynn is not so excited about being here. He says, quote, I hate this place, but not as much as I hate these people. Oh, boy. We've all been in meetings <laughs> like that. 
Uh, these people include some Marvel heavy hitters. Again, Hickman really wants us to know. It, it feels like an indie kind of book, but he wants to make sure we know this is a thousand percent in continuity in the MCU. So we see Dr. Doom here, Reed Richards. Uh, anybody else you particularly recognize from this little tableau? I mean, the red dress woman on the left, I'm guessing, is Agatha Harkness. Oh, could be, sure. And let's see, do I see anyone else? Yeah, there's some AIM people. You see them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the, the fandom wiki says that Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci and Nic- Nikola Tesla are here, which I weren't, didn't even know they were Marvel characters, but maybe one of these background characters is them. Uh, you might have a Quentin choir on the steps, <laughs> with the down steps on the right. I, I don't know. Hard to tell, but the oh, pink yeah, hair makes me think like it Quentin. might be him. He's got pink hair, and he looks like he's kind of got a bad attitude, so that's Quentin. Uh, we do see in the following pages, we definitely see Clea Strange, Amadeus Cho, who's, you know, the totally awesome Hulk, I think is what they called him. Uh, we see Brother Voodoo, and we see Black Panther. Now, this group, I don't think it gets a name, this Library of Worlds group. It's it's not quite the Illuminati, right? It's got that feel to it, but much bigger and split between here are the science people and here are the magic people. So again, very much this book's theme, science, magic. The main speakers are Doctor Strange, the magic guy, and that Centivar number two of the Centum, the science guy. Uh, Centivar 97, uh, Iko wins maybe ex-wife. Anyway, they're estranged. She's also there, and it's awkward. It's especially awkward when Dimitri points out just how awkward it is. That doesn't ever help. Uh, Centivar number two lays out why they're there. It's it's a Babylon event, end of the world stuff. Some new baddie called the Proto Mage, Cubisk Core, long thought dead, but now back is doing some bad stuff. Now, Ruben is or is not Cubisk Core the most Hickman ass name you have ever heard in your life? Yeah, and it oh definitely is, and even the face <laughs> and everything else. It's sort of like, yeah, this is a Hickman character. That's the name that makes you go, oh, oh, yeah, that's that's kind of Hickman who might have, he could have been dialed that back just a little bit. But anyway, Cubisk Core has possession of the staff of the Living, Tri- Living Tribunal, so that's some serious multiversal kind of power. And he's trying to, I don't think it really matters much exactly what he's trying to do. You know, bad stuff, end of the world, you get the picture. And the science people, the magic people have to stop him. Core does talk about boxes a lot which I think relates to that one promo page we saw of Tyr, the Asgardian, climbing into a literal box and shutting himself inside. Might also be related to the promo page where the Centivars find Tesseracts, cosmic cubes inside multiversal bodies. Again, the guy's name is Cube-isk, right? Cubisk, cubes, we, we get it, Jonathan. Yeah, and he seems to be working for some sort of yet-to-be-disclosed bad guy behind the curtain. That is true. That is probably important. That's probably... The big bad of the series, I guess, but we don't get to see who that is yet. But he's not he's not working on his own pure initiative. So now once again, Hickman does the thing where he cuts back and forth between two simultaneous stories. He did that in the ten years ago, and he does that in the now. In one half, the science people, the magic people battle against the forces of Cubisk Core. It's all, you know, quite impressive. You know, magic and shooting and kicking, all that good superhero stuff we come to comics for. It's told in widescreen panels and with a color palette that's all pinks and blues and purples. Uh, The other bit that we're going to get to in a minute gets these red, green, yellow colors, which I think is really neat. Very, very comics-y. The colorist, Marte Gracia, really lets readers know very easily which part of the story you're in. If you see one color scheme, you're in the, the superhero battle. 
You see the other color scheme, you're with Dimitri and Wynn. Very cool. And just, even just flipping through it you know, super quickly, you can tell right away which part of the story you're in. Yeah. And this battle, they, I think Hickman does a pretty good job of portraying it as a sort of like infinite gauntlet level threat. So Cubis Core gets the staff of the Living Tribunal, which, you know, that's a big name, a big cosmic name. And then he, you know, connects to some other stuff and seems to have the ability to change reality. And so this whole thing seems to be like science guys, magic guys, and other people. We need to attack him from like multiple fronts in order to. Yeah, they have you know. a, a whole plan. Uh, he's at a place called the Prometheus Pit, which I gather is also an existing, like, if the, the staff is this giant magic totem in the Marvel Universe, that the Prometheus Pit is kind of this equivalent, but on a science end of things, science, magic, we, we get it. I mean, it's, it's a cool fight. I wasn't super interested in this fight, but it, it's, it's well done for what it is. And again, gives a reason to have all these other Marvel characters, you know, do some cool stuff. Yeah, I wasn't interested in the specifics of it because I didn't think this was really going to happen as like an actual threat. But I thought it was done as good background scenery as like, oh, we're having an end of the world conflict here. And the art tells me that. Yeah, makes it feel like an epic thing. And so I really liked that because we see Wynn and uh, Strange in the other half, right? Showing what the real end game is, is that they like have this whole thing going on to sort of distract from their alternative mission. It's cool because the the superhero pages feel like the big, you know, end of Avengers Endgame kind of fight. It should be the big thing. And we find out that the real victory is won an entirely different way. So what happens is Wynn and Dimitri go off and do this something completely separate. These are those red, green, yellow pages. It starts off because Wynn spots a penny on the ground, which is a, a John Wilkes Booth penny. Hmm. I'm not a much of a numismatist, but I don't think I've ever seen one of those. Uh, I guess with the whole Babylon event going on, we've got some cracks in the multiverse, things falling through, whatever. It's it's fine. There's a, a cool penny there. And talking, uh, I'm going to pause on that really quick. Is go, go for it. You know, these are the things that make me think that Hickman does a great job with the character work because we see repeatedly through this series that when one of his personality traits is he seems super aloof, but he also seems super observant. Like, he notices things all the time, right? When he went to that party with the fish lady and the wolf, right? Like, the first thing he says is, oh, I can spot, you know, this statue over here, which is indicative of this kind of bad magic karma stuff. So, I, I like this. I think he's a very, you know, he's, he comes across as not paying attention, sort of. But in reality, he's the kind of guy that notices, hey, there's a penny that's from another dimension laying here as he's just walking down the street. Yeah, and he's, he's very playful about it, too. So he makes Dimitri pick up the penny, and then there's a little panel where he kind of smacks Dimitri's hand from below and pops the penny up and catches it in his other hand. You know, just a, a suave, kind of cool guy kind of move. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to pull any wool over his eyes. Yeah, he's he's a, an interesting character. I want to see more of him, which, again, I don't say that about a lot of Hickman characters. So what they do here is they take this penny and they do a, a series of trades. You happen to remember some years ago, around 2006, some guy in, in the real world I'm talking did a publicity stunt where he started off with a single red paperclip, and he traded that for a thing, and he traded that for a thing, and eventually he got himself a house out of it. They do that in a lot of things. There was a similar thing in the magic community, uh, Magic the Gathering, yeah, just to mix my nerd hobbies, where a guy basically took like crap cards and traded all the way up to like the most expensive magic card. Sure. That makes sense. And, and this is this is what Hickman has them do here. So. Uh, the trades go through four different elders of the universe. First, he takes the John Wilkes Booth penny to the collector, 
Tanelier Tyven. This is the character played by Benicio del Toro in the MCU. We've seen him. The collector, he has to have this penny. Super into it. He gives two items in return, a book and a clock with six hands. Hey, we've seen this clock before. That was from the promo pages from Guardians of the Galaxy. And while they're here, we do see Dimitri sneakily installing one of those little squares in the collector's collection. They take the clock, they keep the book, but they take the clock and trade it to the contemplator, Toth Key, another elder. He offers win any of these four vases. Win chooses, and I love the way he phrased this, I'll take the weird looking one. Now off to the vault of the possessor. Camo Thorn. Uh, this seems to be essentially, essentially like a safe deposit vault. Wynn breaks the weird looking vase and finds a key inside. Dimitri points out, you know, you didn't need to break it. You could have just reached inside or, or turned it upside down and, and shook it with, you know, a decent joke. Illuminates the characters again. Uh, the possessor goes off on a weird tangent about why he never showers. Uh, is that, what was that about? I had no idea why that was in here. Any guesses? Is this a possessor thing? He, he just smells bad? Yeah, I think maybe they're just trying to flesh out the characters of the elders. Sure, why not? Uh, so, yeah, he does take the key and brings back the security box it corresponds to, and inside the box is a translocator, some instant teleportation device. This one is locked to this location, this vault of the possessor. One final trade. Now they're at the Grand Bazaar of the Trader, Court Zotinis. Everybody's favorite character, right? We all have our Court Zotinis action figures in front of us. Uh, here, they just so happen to run into Doctor Strange. Uh, there's a, a funny bit here. I love this bit where Dimitri asks, hey, you know, what the hell, dude? Aren't you supposed to be back there with the heroes doing all that fighting stuff? And Strange says, nah, that speech I made, that was just to rally the children while the adults can seek a more effective asymmetrical solution. And Wynn agrees, yeah, that's, that's what we're doing too. So what the trader has to offer is a trip through this portal. It's the inhuman portal of Eldrat. And by inhuman, he means like capital I inhuman, as in the inhumans. This portal is an inhuman. He's a character, Eldrak, created by, you're never going to guess this, Jonathan Hickman. About a dozen years ago in his Fantastic Four run, uh, you, you walk into Eldrak's mouth and he teleports you. He was previously last seen in Inhumans vs. X-Men, which I'm going to mention in our next podcast, too, talking about uh, what's going on in X-Men these days. Strange says that the deal with Eldrak, I think this is new, uh, is that he doesn't send you where you want to go. He sends you where you need to go and at the precise moment that you need to be there as well. But you have to make a trade with the trader. Strange trades broken stones of power, whatever the hell those are, and he goes through. Wind it trades made me wonder, the- uh, as an aside, you were telling me the other day about the current status of the Infinity Gems. And I was like, are these the discarded remnants of those? Oh. Which, who knows? Interesting. I, I know In that my head, yeah, maybe the they are. gems are now people, but I don't yeah. know if the stones themselves still exist in a depowered form. That's not a bad guess. I like it. Uh, the last, other thing before we move on is I wanted to mention the, in general, the elders of the universe. I know of them because of the gardener who is like the one that created Groot. And obviously everyone knows the collector. Those are sort of the two that I was familiar with. So it was fun to see the other ones. But also when they were saying, hey, this is going to be a Sandman type book, I was like, well, there's got to be some pantheon or family of gods, right? And when I was trying to speculate as to like who it might be, I thought, oh, well, maybe it'll be like a Elders of the Universe story. So it's kind of fun to see them in here. I, I now think obviously it's the powers that be and the natural order of things, but it was kind of uh, satisfying to see another, you know, cosmic pantheon 
if not just briefly, but yeah, I always enjoy seeing them. We need to see where these new concepts kind of fit into an already crowded Marvel universe. So to see them interact this way is, is a nice thing. Oh, but a la- the very last thing. Go ahead. Yeah. We see in most of those times, Dimitri, as he visits each of the elders, he like plops one of his little square doohickey things into their spaces. I only saw him do it once. Did I miss it? I, I, in my head canon, he was doing it all along the way. I, probably. Right? I think he, he only, just... only saw that one time. But yeah, again, I think that pretty much everywhere he goes. We, oh, I don't think he even mentioned it, but he left one at outside that party 10 years ago. So he's, he's been doing this for a while. Okay, so the trade now from Wynn is for this translocator. The trader's not super impressed until he finds out, hey, this is locked to the vault of the possessor his fellow elder of the universe. And the elders of the universe are always trying to kind of get one up on each other. So you can see that this plays right into their little eternal game. That's kind of fun. So now all that Wynn has left from his trades is that book. He got that from the collector, has held on to it ever since. And it doesn't matter how long all these trades took because we're told Eldrak will send them to the correct time regardless, which is nice because otherwise we'll be saying, hey, how long is this battle going on? How long did it take them to trade? But this is Heckman saying it. Don't even freaking worry about it. It's fine. Okay, now it's the final battle. Final battle. We kind of better speed things up here. All that really happens is that Wynn accidentally on purpose drops this book. And Dimitri freaks out. Oh no, don't let the bad guy get the magic book sort of thing. And so the bad guy, Cubis Kakor, remember, he grabs the book, opens it, reads it, and falls flat on his face. It was a ruse. The book is called uh, B-U-C-H-C-U-B, the Book Cube? Buck Cub? Yeah, I can't say that. Yeah, I, I Googled this all over the place. It seems to be brand new. It's a palindrome? Forwards and backwards spell the same? Might be relevant? Anyway, it's the it's deal we find out. It's an anti-book. When you read it, it erases knowledge from your mind. Sure. Fine. That, that's a perfectly decent little little twist, little trick. This is how you, you win over the big powerful bad guy. Yeah, we see here that when even tricked Dimitri, right? Because... He, he wanted a good performance out of him. Yeah, he makes a point of emphasizing that it's important to Dimitri so that when he drops it, Dimitri freaks out, which then makes Cubis think, oh, this is something I, you know, this was the tool they were going to use to, you know, defeat me with a spell or something like that. So Again, I loved a, it. I thought a it was classic clever. trick. Yeah. So we cut to a time period just called later. It doesn't seem all that much later. I think it's probably just after. Uh, Win and Strange on the rooftop. This is the scene from the very beginning of the book. And Win asks Strange, "Are you good?" Strange waffles a bit and says, "You know, yeah, I'm good." And shoots the whole same question back. Win does the whole "Who can tell the difference anymore?" thing. Goes on in that vein for several paragraphs. He's tired of the whole deal. It's pointless. He's kind of almost nihilistic. He's been here for a thousand years. He's kind of sick of it all. And then his wife or ex-wife, estranged wife, you know. Iko, number 97. She runs up, gives him a big old smooch and says, that's for saving us. And Wynn is forced to admit that maybe this whole who can tell a different shtick, kind of a bunch of BS. So yeah, that's that's the book. What did you uh, what did you think of this this last bit here? Was it too corny or was it just corny enough? No, it was perfect for me. I thought it was very good because this is the dynamic, right? Like the thing he cares most about is his relationship with Iko. And he doesn't even view her as his ex-wife, right? In his mind, they're just separated. And for a guy who's lived a thousand years, right? What's a what's a five year, or I guess what ten year? Ten. Yep. <laughs> a ten year stretch, right? Like that's dropping the bucket for him. They're just having a rough patch, I guess, is his view. <laughs> sure. And I'm also a romantic, like Win, right? So I'm like, I hope he ends up with the girl in the end that they can, you know, get beyond their commitments to 
the higher orders of things. Yeah, and it's a very just have a personal thing to have relationship. the hero be in a relationship that doesn't quite work because his job gets in the way, you know, Spider-Man, MJ, all that stuff. And to have it be kind of her job getting in the way, that's a, a nice kind of little subtle twist. And I, I like it. I think these characters are, are going to be fun to, to keep up. With. Yeah. Another thing I really like about this is when is a character is basically he seems to, you know, kind of think he doesn't serve good or evil that he serves something else that's sort of like, you know, uh, almost like 90 degrees to that. Yeah, exactly. So like, I, but I think this is them showing that, you know, eh, he kind of leans good though. Right. Even though a lot of people might think what he's doing is not, yeah. you know, I mean, positive it's, it's almost or not. A, a Han Solo and Star Wars kind of thing, right? He's, he doesn't, I don't want to be part of your resistance, not part of the empire. I'm just here to, to you know smuggle and do my own thing. But at the end, General Solo shows up in the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, that's a really good comparison. I I view him in that regard. And then last thing I'll say is I really like having a character that can um, both... I think he kind of likes Doctor Strange, but at the same time, he can talk down to Doctor Strange like, hey, you're, you know, the naive hero. You know, you're me when I was only 100 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me in the 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 first hints of this book came out, the first kind of sketches... A lot of people thought that this character drawn by Skeety was Doctor Strange, the one that turned out to be Wind. They do kind of look similar, but they're char- and they have similar, they're both magic-y types, but their characters are very, very different. So it is, it is good to see them interacting as well. And it's, a, it's definitely a amalgam of a lot of characters. I see some um, Constantine in Wind a little bit. Naturally. But yeah. he's, not, he's not as nasty, but mm-hmm. obviously he's a trickster, right? Or like a clever character. And he deals in magic, but seems to be able to solve things without throwing lightning bolts. And uh, I don't think he smokes, so that's a big difference. <laughs> don't live for and a he hasn't years condemned anyone to hell yet. <laughs> as far as we know. <laughs> he hasn't, yeah, traded it's somebody. It's only issue so. number one. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, that's, that's the book. It's a, a nice intro to the characters, and it's a well-constructed one-shot all on its own. It's interesting that there's no, it's a number one issue, but there's no obvious, here's what's going to happen next, right? There's no quest he's on, no crisis, just some new characters to play with, and this hint of whoever Cubist Core was working for. But it's not like a lot of number ones you can tell, okay, this is, we know exactly what direction the story is going in, but that's that's not what Hickman does here. It does raise a lot of questions for us to wonder about, like, for instance, what does the God's acronym stand for? Still want to know. Where does Wynn get his orders from? Who does he report to? Why is Dimitri living these little white squares stuck all over creation? We can speculate, but we don't know yet. But what exactly is this compact between the powers that be and natural order of things? How does that work? So a lot of ways this story can go. So it's really is Hickman creating a section of the Marvel Universe to play in rather than starting off one particular story. Now, I've already praised both artist Valerio Schiti and colorist Marte Gracia. They make the book look really good. And it's a tough job. There's so many characters to draw here, right? To make it look distinctive, including these three new ones, Wynn, Dimitri, and Ico, who never draw, been drawn before and pretty sure are going to be our main characters for the rest of the series. Uh, it's a very Jonathan Hickman book. It doesn't come with data pages, but you can almost draw them yourself, right? There's two opposing sides. One side has one avatar. It has a hundred huge comic cosmic forces opposing each other. It's not simple, straightforward, primary colors, superhero comics, except for that one bit where, you know, he's almost subverting that by having the real story be in the panels that aren't these superhero battling comics. Uh, if you hated what Hickman did with the X-Men, 
you're, you're probably not going to like this either. It's it's not this is not going to be a, a crowd pleasing. Everybody's going to love this kind of book. Although this is not Hickman making drastic changes to existing characters that people love, so maybe people won't get as offended by this as some people were by by uh, Hawks and Pox. Yeah, I think the offensive thing is going to be this idea that oh, this the powers that be and the natural order of things have always been around and yeah, that you know, is that is a hurdle because. We've seen so much of the Marvel Universe. We've seen giant cosmic powers, you know, from Galactus to you know, death itself to all these, you know, Eternals. And uh, what do the Eternals work for again? The big oh, cosmic robot. Yeah, yeah. Things, you know, gosh. giant cosmic about. powers. You'd think, hey, we would have seen these groups before. And Hickman's going to have to convince us why we haven't heard of them before. But, you know, I, I get it. It's 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 comics that happens. Uh, but but yeah, the the big complaint about Hickman has always been he doesn't make characters; he only puts out ideas. But I think he really does both here. Uh, Win, Dimitri, Ico, all really good characters. Cubist Core, not so much. But the main three are real people, not just chess pieces. Hickman's moving around his chessboard. So I think this is a, we could say that Hickman is improving here as a writer, which is always fun to see. Okay, so score time. We, this book, a lot of the chatter about this book is that it does cost. What, 10 bucks, I think is the cover price for 60 pages of comics. Not at all cheap. I'm not going to take that into account given the score, but I certainly understand people who aren't crazy about this idea, not wanting to go out and, and drop 10 bucks on a book. It sounds cool. You know, wait for it to show up in Marvel Unlimited. It, it's worth it for that. Uh, it's not for everyone. I liked it a lot. It's one of the better books I've read this year. I almost want to go nine. Nine That's, would be yeah. nine would be crazy. I can't no. quite go nine. Okay. Jim would uh, kick me off this podcast, put me in the same box as Susgade <laughs> if I were to call it a nine. So I can't go nine, but I'm going to call it 8.8 .8 out of 10. So Ruben, yeah. what score are you going to give? I guess I don't have a job anymore, so <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to... No, nine is exactly where I'm at on you this. I loved it so dreams. much. I thought the art was amazing. The character dynamics were fun. I, I took so much from just the facial expressions and pauses mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know i thought the banner was witty i always love a you know a smart guy and if you give me um constantine who's not an asshole like that's probably my favorite character ever so cool i think it this is a, a really neat character book, but he's not he's using all the pages to good effect it, they're all here for a reason which i like and you know i think i've gone on record to say i uh, celestials by the way that's it just yes, finally came of to course. me <laughs> of course, thank you. but uh yeah it was a c word yeah, I'm a big fan of like the cosmic stuff. So, um, saying that the suggesting that this is going to be a story that really outlines those characters and gives stories with them involved is going to get me excited. I was happy to see the elders. Um, and I will be happy to learn who these new gods are and what they're up to and how the old gods interrelate to them. So, this has pretty much everything I want in a Marvel comic. So, I was really happy with it. Very cool. Now, I have no idea if. We're going to be talking about the rest of gods. It, I, I can't imagine Jim's going to steal this book back away from us. I'm sure we won't go into as much depth going forward. But yeah, we'll, we'll probably talk about this sometime again. So yeah, thanks everybody for joining us. If you're new to this branch of the Weird Science family, Ruben and I, we invite you to visit again and, and you know see our X-Men podcast. Every week, we talk about the X-Men books that came out. And it's, it's an exciting time in the X-Universe as we head towards what seems to be the end of an era coming up in January. So if you want to know what's going on with the mutants, and maybe you haven't been following, but you're kind of curious now that it's ending because you want to see what happens next, yeah, tune in to the Weird Dose of X and, and we'll tell you what's up. Okay, Ruben, so 
Until folks join us again to talk about Jonathan Hickman and gods and the elders and our new favorite character, Cubist Core, uh, what do you think folks could do with their time? <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's not how I was going to end the podcast. I was going to end it with a crazy pun. So I'm going to go with that instead. Okay, so Ruben, what crazy pun would you like to leave our audience with? I'll yes, set you up again. Yes, well, that's a wrap for today's God's Podcast, where the magic of storytelling is the real Sorcerer Supreme. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.